You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Well, all eyes are still on that Manhattan grand jury as we await its decision on whether it will indict Donald Trump and as the former president issues increasingly dark and threatening messages on his social media platform. Joining me now to talk about a truly bizarre week in, in American politics, chief correspondent for The Washington Post, Dan Baltz. Dan, as always, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning on a long week of waiting and watching. <laughs> right? So after an, uh, an unexpected day off on Wednesday for the Manhattan grand jury, it now appears that any vote on an indictment will not come until early next week. But what happens if the grand jury does not hand up an indictment? Well, that would uh, that would shock Donald Trump, who is uh, seemingly counting on being indicted by this grand jury as a way to stir more interest in his candidacy and keep himself in the forefront of the conversation. I mean, he certainly dominated this week. Cable television has been obsessed with talking about the possibility of the indictment and all manner of uh, implications of what that would bring. So I think Donald Trump would be disappointed. But um, honestly, this is the least of the potential uh, charges that he faces in the various investigations that are underway. Uh, so if this grand jury decides not to indict, I think it would, A, be an indication that they concluded that this was perhaps a weaker case than they wished, um, but B, it, doesn't, it does not do anything to put him out of danger for all of the other investigations and the more serious ones having to do with January 6th. Right, and that's a great segue, Dan, because... Um, Trump's social media posts, as I said before, have become increasingly dark and violent um, since the one he issued last Saturday in which he said he was going to be arrested on Tuesday, which did not happen. And he called for for protests, which, which did not happen. But uh, uh, yesterday he uh, posted a photo of Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg next to a picture of himself holding a baseball bat. And then, Dan, I don't know if you were up at 108 a.m. <laughs> this morning, but Donald Trump warned warned that, quote, potential death and destruction in such a false charge could be catastrophic, catastrophic for our country. He's talking about potential charges from the Manhattan DA. My question to you is, is he really worried about the Manhattan DA or is he worried about what's going to happen today? today's testimony before special uh, counsel Jack Smith's grand jury in Washington. Jonathan, I think he has to be worried, seriously worried about what's going on with that grand jury and, and with uh, with Jack Smith's investigations. I mean, that that is by far the most serious one. Uh, and the kind of rhetoric that he's put forward, and no, I was not up at 1 a.m. when that posted, but uh, I did catch up with it early this morning. Um, it is similar to the kind of rhetoric that we heard from him ahead of January 6th. Now, we can't predict what's going to happen um, in terms of his supporters, um, but we know that he will try to do everything he can to stir that pot. Uh, and I think it's a reminder of the degree to which he is a danger to uh, the, the democracy of this country. And he is, he is in legal peril, again, these are difficult cases uh, that, you know, that involve the January 6th uh, issue. 
both in, uh, in the Department of Justice and in Georgia. Um, and obviously, there's also the question about the classified documents. Uh, there's another case moving on that front. Um, but um, he's clearly worried about that, and he's going to try to do whatever he can uh, to rally his supporters and to make himself uh, the focal point of the Republican Party that in many ways uh, wants to break away from him but still can't. And when these things happen, they get drawn back in around his uh, orbit. And what makes today's uh, testimony so unnerving for the former president is that his lawyer, Evan Corcoran, has to immediately turn over documents subpoenaed by the special counsel, something that they tried to stop. Um, and they tried to stop it using attorney-client privilege, but the lower court, the appeals court, uh, said, uh, that doesn't work here because the government's presented, clear, presented enough evidence to show that the attorney-client uh, privilege shield um, does not hold up here. Dan, let's talk about the politics of all this, because some political observers, such as Senator Lindsey Graham, say an indictment will only uh, help Donald Trump. He's been gaining in the polls. He's raised uh, a few million dollars since he put out that, that post last Saturday. But will his behavior this week hurt him nationwide with swing and moderate voters? Jonathan, it's, you know, it's the question that we're all asking, and it's the question that we really can't answer at this point. Um, I, I think in the short term, this kind of thing does seem to help him. It forces Republicans to rally uh, behind him. Um, it, it makes him a dominant and even more dominant figure in terms of kind of the pecking order within the Republican Party. But we don't, we can't measure at this point what the, the kind of the long-term potential damage this is for a general election. Um, and, and I think that that's something that won't be measurable for a long time. We've, you know, we've all been through so many episodes in which, you know, the, the pundit class has written him off or said that he can't survive this or he can't survive that. Uh, and he does continue to survive. Uh, opinions are very well locked in on Donald Trump. We, we've known that for actually several years now. Um, there are these blips that occur around big events, um, but they tend to settle back. And I think that the question is, uh, how much will this hurt him in a Republican nomination battle against presumably Ron DeSantis, who's edging closer and closer to a candidacy? Um, and what will it look like uh, in October of 2024, um, depending on what that general election looks like? We're, you know, we're heading toward President Biden being the nominee of the Democratic Party. Um, if Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party, I think given where the country is at this point, there's every reason to believe that that will be a very competitive race. But, but between now and then, there's so much that's going to happen. I mean, we're going to find out what these various investigations finally conclude and whether there is indictable uh, evidence that puts him, you know, in, a, in the dock. You invoked his name, so let's talk about him. Governor DeSantis of Florida, uh, when he was asked about a possible Trump indictment this week, the governor said, used the opportunity to criticize the Manhattan DA, and then he took a veiled swipe at Donald Trump, where he said he didn't. He said um, he didn't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn. <laughs> he didn't know what goes into paying um, uh, hush money uh, to to a porn star. Um, one, what do you make of that veiled that veiled hit at Trump? And do you think that will resonate with the Republican primary base? 
Well, I thought it was a fairly clever way of, uh, of being on both sides of the question, frankly. Right. Um, every Republican in one form or another is, is going after uh, Mr. Bragg uh, at this point. But uh, Governor DeSantis also found a way to go after Donald Trump. Uh, and clearly, as we've seen this this week and some of the things that Governor DeSantis has said, <clears throat> he's going to make character a very central part of his criticism of Donald Trump. It's not clear that he's going to go after him on, on this issue or that issue. Um, but the question of character and competence and, and calmness, I think, is, is an aspect of it. That, you know, that with Donald Trump, you get constant chaos. And is that what Republicans want in their nominee? And do Republican primary voters think that that is the formula for winning the general election after it failed in 2020 with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket? So I, I, I think Governor DeSantis is is finding a way um, to be uh, to court the Trump constituency, um, but also to be tough on Donald Trump at the same time. Yeah, in that interview, that he, he says, I think, uh, in talking about how running government, he says, I think is no daily drama, focus on the big picture, and put points on the board. Uh, Dan Baltz, as always, it is great to see you. Dan Baltz, Chief Correspondent for The Watch Post, thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we'll find my Washington Post columnist colleagues, E.J. Dion and Jennifer Rubin. E.J., Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Thanks. Great to be with you. All right, this is to both of you. Jennifer, I would love for you to go first. We've got to talk about that Trump post from 108 this morning, 108 a.m. First, does it betray worry about Alvin Bragg or Jack Smith? I think it's all of the above. Um, sometimes the media convinces itself that everything somehow magically works to Trump's benefit and he's really enjoying this or this is going to really seal the deal. I think what this conveys is abject panic, and it should, because it. you're right, it's not just Alvin Bragg. It is the Mar-a-Lago um, case in which his own attorney is going to be called forward to present not only testimony, but apparently notes and recordings of Donald Trump in regard to a case involving the espionage and obstruction of justice. And no crime, I suppose, is small, but in comparison to uh, the uh, New York case, um, we're talking about an elephant and a peanut. Um, this is real serious stuff. And if you have the attorney, someone intimately connected with Donald Trump who can give direct evidence that he intentionally withheld documents, that he wanted to confuse and baffle and tie up um, the investigation, then that's really, you know, uh, pretty close to uh, a stake through the heart. And then, of course, there is the January 6th. So I think it is all closing in on him. Um, no matter what he says, um, he doesn't want to be arrested. He doesn't want to be um, put in front of a jury. He understands all too well um, that there are many people, particularly in New 
New York who would form the jury that um, would be happy to send him away. And the same thing in these other um, jurisdictions. So Donald Trump is, as they say, decompensating, meaning his emotional health is unwinding faster than we have seen before. Um, And I think we will see this continued uh, flailing about and these threats of violence, which are serious and potentially illegal um, when he's talking about uh, putting out a picture of him holding a baseball bat to the head of Alvin Bragg. Um, There's something called menacing that is a crime under New York law, menacing a public official. And he's coming up really close, if not over that line. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen that picture, that seems um, like way over, <laughs> way over that line you're talking about. EJ, your, your thoughts on one of two, two questions that I have. Um, does his um, social media post this morning betray uh, a worry about Alvin Bragg or Jack Smith or all of the above? Well, I think all of the above, and I think Jen raised an interesting point. It would be so ironic if after everybody saying, oh, gee, the Manhattan thing isn't a big deal, that he, by attacking Bragg, courted yet another charge, which might end up being even more serious than the ones Bragg uh, is thinking of bringing. And by the way, Michael Cohen, his lawyer, went to jail on charges connected to the same sort of stuff Bragg is going after now. So I just don't buy the line that that isn't serious. Having said that, I think the Jack Smith stuff is extremely serious. He is nervous about it. He should be nervous about it. At this point, he's going to have to hire an NBA stadium to fit all the lawyers he's had to hire uh, in these multiple cases, because you also got the Atlanta case where he basically said, please fix the election for me. That case seems to have gone into uh, into abeyance. Um, what's really astonishing, although not surprising, is how reluctant Republicans still are to look at some of these tweets, the 1 a.m. And no, I wasn't up either waiting for Donald Trump's <laughs> tweets. But that 1 a.m. tweet, the racism, the anti-Semitism, um, it's all very nice that Ron DeSantis took that poke. Uh, at Trump uh, for, you know, uh, DeSantis saying, well, I didn't really have any experience with paying off a porn star. But when are they going to speak up? And I think what you're seeing is a real contradiction here in our politics. Most Democrats and independents are sick of Trump. Republicans are still stuck on Trump. His approval rating among Republicans is still very high. And so his potential opponents still don't know what to do with him any more than they did back in 2015 or 2016. And that's a real problem for their party. EJ, you brought something up that was the second part of my question. And I'm going to come to uh, this is for both of you. But EJ, I want you to pick this up because I'm wondering, are you as troubled as I am by the blatant, open anti-Semitism and racism of the attacks? on Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg? Yes, I I think everybody should be. I think that most Republicans should be. The notion that, uh, you know, if they want to say, if they really, really have to say, well, we don't think these charges should be brought, well, fine, although I think they're wrong. But why they can't find it in them to say, this is not something a major political party in the U.S. founded by Abraham Lincoln, for God's sake, Uh, should put up with. Uh, And I am really troubled that they continue to go along with this. Again, 
I wish I were more surprised than I am, but it's really disconcerting. And the anti-Semitism piece of this, Jennifer, is um, um, a series of Republicans. Um, this morning on Morning Joe, they showed a montage of Republicans talking about the Manhattan DA being a quote unquote, George Soros funded, George Soros backed Manhattan DA. And it, you know, stretches back to this very anti-Semitic um, trope about, you know, George Soros being a, a, a very wealthy Jewish person who's somehow behind the scenes controlling everything. It is truly, um, I mean, it's, it's disgusting, it's anti-Semitic, but why are people like Elise Stefanik, who is in the Republican leadership, and others out there saying all of this stuff out loud, mainstreaming it? Because they are courting other anti-Semites, because this is what they think the base wants to hear. And frankly, the media has not done a good job here. Whenever they say George uh, Soros, the exercise is not to go into the minutia and decide whether George Soros, who is a major contributor, actually spent money in this race or that. It's to put this in context and explain that the only reason they are using George Soros's name again and again and again is because he is a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And they are perpetuating the myth, the anti-Semitic trope that Jews control money and they control our politics. It is blatant, it's disgusting, and until the media begins to explain that and confront Republicans with that simple fact, that undeniable fact, they are going to continue to do it. And it is absolutely reprehensible that Republicans who know better, and frankly, Elise Stefanik is herself Jewish, so it she doesn't get a pass because she's Jewish. She knows what she is doing. She is fanning the, the flames of anti-Semitism. At a time, the ADL just came out yeah. with a horrendous report documenting a 50% increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes in the state of Maryland. Not exactly deep red America, is it? So no. I think this is a serious problem. I wish, frankly, not only Republicans would speak out about it, but Democrats and the White House. Um, this is what the second gentleman has been talking about, the yeah. spread and conflagration of anti-Semitism. This should be example A. You know, if, if I could just make ahead, one quick think? point to underscore Jen's point. Sure. The guy who really pioneered the attack on George Soros was Viktor Orban, uh, in Hungary. And this should be very disconcerting for us. The Republican Party should not want to be the party of Viktor Orban, but we've seen that a significant chunk of that party has embraced that his authoritarianism. And again, I agree with Jen, this should be a much more central uh, question that is posed all the time to everybody, because we don't want this sort of anti-Semitism or racism and some of the other stuff Trump has posted as part of our politics. You know, when the Trump campaign released its statement after Trump last, last Saturday, I started reading it on air. And as soon as I saw the words George Soros, that's when I said, I'm not reading this anymore because I did not want to amplify that. And yet we've got um, elected officials, Republican leaders who are doing it um, blatantly. Let's switch gears and talk about um, Chinese President Xi and Russian President Vladimir Putin. They had a big 
meeting in Russia this week over three days. They uh, met for three hours at the Kremlin on Tuesday. Uh, one of the concerns of the Biden administration was that one of the results out of this, this meeting between the two leaders would be a ceasefire proposal for U Ukraine. None has been offered yet. But EJ, did this meeting bring, do you think, did it bring Xi and Putin even closer? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. And I think we're looking at a very new configuration of forces in the world. The United States, since Nixon has been trying to split then the Soviet Union and now Russia from China. Um, and I think this is partly their reaction to the fact that the Western democracies, though not all of the uh, democracies in the developing world by any means, but has brought the Western democracies together. But I think our colleague David Ignatius made a very good point on this, which is really this meeting was also a sign of the profound weakness of Vladimir Putin, um, that Xi is really the strong figure uh, in this. Uh, China is taking advantage of cheap energy uh, from Russia. Um, uh, Putin needs Xi far more than Xi needs Putin. Um, but I think what you are also seeing, and David made this point too, is you can't, we used to think of, well, there's uh, the European theater of the world, and then there's the Asia Pacific. They are really coming together uh, in a, you know, a kind of Eurasia uh, confrontation between different powers. Um, and that's what we're confronting right now. What gives me hope is a lot of Asian countries, I was traveling there recently, um, are very uneasy about rising Chinese power. And even when they are theoretically allied with China or not hostile, uh, they do not want an entirely dominant China in that part of the world. And so I think there's a lot to play for here going forward. So uh, Jennifer, is there anything the Biden administration can do to discourage or meddle with the growing um, Xi-Putin alliance? Well, there are two things they can do. One is to be absolutely clear with the Chinese that they will not tolerate any arms transfer, for example, or violation of the sanctions. And from what we know, that's been generally successful. But the other thing is really to have a completely cohesive, um, comprehensive anti-China policy. And that has to involve not only our domestic policy, bringing our um, supply chains home, bringing chip production home, but a full hands-on effort uh, among the Western democracies um, to oppose China, oppose theft of intellectual property, oppose cyber uh, terrorism and malicious activities, oppose their growth in the uh, the China Sea, um, that we really need a much more comprehensive policy than we have. We've kind of gone at this piecemeal. We don't, for example, yet have a complete China trade policy. They've been working right, and, on that for a couple of years. Yes, so where I, is that? Right. And on that is perfect because I'm wondering, should the TPP be revived, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the Biden, I'm sorry, the Obama administration worked really hard on and then it got scuttled? Absolutely. This was the worst bit of political malpractice by both parties. We had eight defense secretaries, and I remember because I wrote on this specifically, pleading with us to make this deal, because this was a deal between the United States and Democratic 
partners in Asia that would have boxed out China. And how we let slip that opportunity from our fingers is really remarkable to me. And they should go back to it, call it something else if they like, call it the anti-China -trade, anti trade pact um, and get going um, to not only bind these, these countries um, economically, but in terms of information sharing, security, intellectual property, and really put a statement out there that the West is united and that China is not gonna write the rules of the road for the 21st century. I got to uh, build back better against China. <laughs> it could be another way to I, talk I think that. that it's going to be very difficult to revive that because I think the TPP got caught up in a, a major backlash against um, globalization. And I think that the reason it went down was not because people opposed the uh, idea of solidarity among non, you know, uh, countries other than China. Uh, but because there was frustration with the way trade rules have been working. Uh, and the Biden administration has been very reluctant to jump all the way back in. But I think we are looking for allies in the rest of Asia. And I think in the long run, we are going to find them. Um, we well, got to get from Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, judging from that TikTok hearing we saw yesterday, there's a lot of bipartisan fury against China. And it would be a great opportunity to harness that in the trade arena and in other areas for exactly the reason that EJ just said, to overcome that normal reluctance that many people have on international trade agreements. Oh, well, since you invoked the name, we're just going to have to talk... I'm going to skip the, the the Federal Reserve and the banks because we'll we'll come back to that next <laughs> week. Let's talk about the future of the American economy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we actually I don't know how much time we've got left, but since Jennifer brought up TikTok, the hearing yesterday, the blistering hearing yesterday, was like a rare exhibition of bipartisanship uh, on Capitol Hill. You had the CEO of TikTok, Chu Ji Chu, who appeared before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And he was bludgeoned by both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, their concerns include the company's link to China and potential online harm to young people. Uh, EJ, should Congress impose regulations on TikTok? And you have to do this in dance form. <laughs> uh, no, nobody watching this wants to see me dance. I'm going to be like Al Gore when he stood there at the Democratic convention absolutely still and said, I'm doing the Macarena. So no dance for me. But I, I want to say a couple of things. One is, it's easy to unite everybody when everybody's mad at the same target. And that's what you saw. Number two, um, and our friend David Rothkoff wrote about this. I think this should inspire us to think about regulation across the board on privacy, on uh, the use of uh, social media by minors, particularly in the nighttime when no one is uh, watching. There is a bill out in Utah that just uh, was signed into law. I, I think we need to think about uh, social media whole. Um, in terms of China, I think the best solution, which may now be impossible, would be to divest TikTok so it could be subject to privacy regulations so we could know um, you know, that the information that people leave there is not being used by hostile powers. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be a good option now, but I think it's the best option we have. And Jennifer, in the time that um, we have left, we have probably at this point about three minutes left, maybe we can talk about banks in 30 seconds. But yeah. one of the concerns, one of the concerns is that TikTok poses a national security risk to the United States. Are those, con are those concerns valid? 
Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Shu says no. Well, I think uh, he didn't really survive with that line, particularly since he was unable to, um, for example, answer a simple question like, um, are the Uyghurs being uh, persecuted in China? It shows just how much power the Chinese government has over him and that company. Um, he says um, it's a separate company, but in fact, the parent company is a Chinese company. And we all know that the Chinese government controls, um, to a very large extent, um, every Chinese company. So there is no guarantee that our information is not somehow um, filtering back to China. There is no guarantee that China will not use it for propaganda purposes. And I think there is a real concern about the China element of this. But I do agree with EJ and with David Rothkopf that many of the people things that these people are worried about are equally applicable to every American platform. Um, disinformation, hate speech, um, use of our personal data, including um, our location. Um, why aren't we finally addressing that issue in a comprehensive way? You don't need to single out uh, TikTok to have a broad-based rule that says you have to have parental controls that really work on social media, or you have have to give explicit consent for each type of personal data to be used before a company can cultivate that and sell it. So I think these are um, two problems that kind of converged in the same hearing. Um, and uh, he really, uh, it was a no-win situation, but frankly, he did a pretty miserable job of defending himself and China um, because, of course, um, there's a central truth there, and that is that China does control this company, and it remains a national security threat. Tony Blinken said it. Others in the national security realm have said it. This is a threat to national security. All right, EJ, I think we literally have less than 30 seconds left. So you've got less than 30 seconds, but the, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. The Biden, uh, the Biden administration says that the, bank, that the banks are fine and safe. Are the banks fine and safe? I sure as heck hope so. I think that raising <laughs> the rate was a way of signaling that uh, the Fed is not worried that a rate where the banks are so shaky that they had to pull back. What I'd like to see, and it can't happen right now, Jeff Summer in the New York Times writes about this, do we need a 2% inflation target? Are we going to wreck the economy to get to 2%? Should we think about 25 to 3% as an inflation target? Because the Fed is walking a very tricky line here. Yes, we want to control inflation. No, we don't want to wreck the economy. Uh, why don't we sort of rethink that over time? A lot of smart people uh, are saying, let's uh, take a look at that 2%. It was sort of arbitrary. Uh, maybe we don't need it as the target anymore. Mm -hmm. um, well, EJ, I hope, you're, I hope you're right that the banks are safe, but this much I do know. I am within the threshold of FDIC protection. <laughs> so, the advantage of not being super rich. <laughs> Thank Bless you. EJ Dion, Jennifer Rubin, we got to go. Thank you so much, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You, you too. too. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.